Today is Tuesday, August 11th, and this is Inspectacast, sponsored by Preferred Reports. Today is a very special day. We're going to be beginning part uh, one of a three-part series that's going to focus on how to become a successful loss control consultant. And that's for the people out there who want to work as independent contractors for companies like Preferred Reports and provide loss control consulting services to our clients, the insurance companies, brokers, managing general agencies, and all the other people out there that retain services of companies like Preferred Reports. Part one is going to focus primarily on personal and financial considerations in starting a business like this. Basically, you're going to be starting, and I'm, I'm addressing these to the people who want to become consultants, you're going to be starting a small business whereby you are going to be selling your services, your experience, your certifications, your knowledge uh, to provide them with risk intelligence. Uh, essentially, you're the eyes of the underwriter. You're going to go out there and you're going to obtain the information they need to have on the risks that they're insuring so that they can make good underwriting decisions. Performing inspections as an independent contractor is an excellent way to earn money. It's your own business. You can earn whatever you want within certain reasonable expectations, and we're going to get into that a bit. Because your earnings are going to be dictated by a few things. First and foremost, your experience and whatever certifications or designations you may have. We have a lot of people who are consultants who are certified safety professionals or have their ARM, which is the Associate Risk Management, uh, CPCU, uh, Chartered Property Casualty Underwriter, could be a licensed adjuster could be a uh, commercial or a residential building contractor, could be retired from the insurance business looking to supplement your income where you were an underwriter or whatever. You may have been a former agent or owned an agency. The one thing that generally you can't be is an active sales agent in property and casualty work if you're doing commercial inspections or in any type of homeowner's residential uh, insurance if you're going to be doing those inspections, because that is a conflict of interest. And certainly that would be something that you would want to consider and especially disclose to anyone that you do work for is that you're holding an agency license or an agent license in a particular line of business. If it's not anything that's going to interfere with the type of inspections you're doing, and if you don't have any other associates within your organization that sell similar insurance, it's not a big deal. But if you do, then it is definitely a conflict of interest because there could be an assumption that you may attempt to steal a client sell business because you'll know what the premium is, all that kind of stuff. So it's best to stay away from that. That's not to say once you retire or if you're no longer an agent and you're not using your license, that you can certainly go ahead and and work on this. It wouldn't become a conflict of interest after that. The next thing that you look at is the type of consulting that you can provide based on that experience. Is it going to be residential uh, where that's, that's pretty much the entry level uh, when you get into consulting, uh, it, it, it is some of the, I can't, I don't want to use the term easier. I don't want to demean it, certainly, because uh, residential inspections are very important. But at the same time, it is something that you don't have to have a wide breadth of knowledge to have to understand. It's a house. You're going to go look at certain things at the house to see what's wrong with it. And you file a report out on it. You take a lot of pictures. So it's a little bit easier than if you were doing a full workers' compensation uh, assessment on a nuclear power plant. That's a little bit different. Uh, when you get into commercial, there's all kinds of different commercial, and there's all kinds of different specialists, generalists, et cetera, and we're going to get into that in just a minute. The next thing is your location, and then how far you're willing to travel and cover if you're not in a very densely populated location, because basically, insurance follows wherever people are. People start businesses, people buy houses, 
people uh, sell services and they need to have insurance to do all of that. And the more people you have in a concentrated area, the more concentrated your business is going to be. And therefore, the more you can do with less expense and the more your revenue can be and the higher your profit potential. If you're out in the middle of farmland and there's very few people around you, you can still make money doing this, but you're going to have to do a lot more than just a handful of inspections. You're going to have to incorporate this with other things that can be done as independent contractors and do that to pool all that together to make money. Uh, because really what it's going to come down to, and we're going to look at this very carefully, is volume and concentration. How much work are you going to get and how close is it to one another? Because that determines how much you can do in one day or one week and how much time it's going to take going from place to place where you do not have revenue. Because obviously the revenue you make is while you're inspecting. That's what you're able to bill for. Uh, you get that information, you fill out a report, you turn it in. You're not making money when you're driving from place to place. So anything that you can do to reduce that amount of uncompensated window time, a lot better. And then finally, the state of the current insurance market. If you're in an area where, or at a time, where a lot of businesses are starting, there's a lot of new businesses, there, there, there's a lot of people moving into the area, buying houses, starting businesses, and obviously, if there's a lot of people moving in, then you're going to have a lot of service industries, hospitality industries coming up around that. That all is going to generate insurance inspections because the two times that generally you get insurance inspections generated is going to be at when the business is first written or when the house is first purchased and then at renewal time. That's pretty much when you get that. Uh, on the commercial side, it could come as a result of excessive claims or, or other things might trigger uh, visits, loss control visits. But for the most part, it is that initial new business and then renewal. And that renewal doesn't always come every year, uh, depending on the type of insurance program. They may only look at things once every couple of years or three years. So regardless, as long as the economy is doing good and there's a brisk market where stuff is turning over, people are buying policies, they're getting insurance, then that's good. Uh, that means that you're going to have some business to do. Now, if you're in workers' comp or if you're doing safety training and things like that, you're still going to have business whether or not they're selling insurance because that, that certainly still exists, but it's not going to have the same churn rate or turnover rate that you would need to see, uh, for instance, in a residential area. If basically you only had 500 houses, all of them were sold two years ago and they've never been sold to anyone else, they still have the same residence and they all have the same insurance, it may be another year before you get to inspect all 500 of them. Whereas, you know, if you're in a very vibrant urban, suburban area or whatever, you're going to have a lot more turnover. There's a lot of things happening every day that's going to trigger insurance changes, insurance orders, things like that. Let's take a moment to look at the types of consultants there are. And these terms that I'm using are arbitrary. Don't expect them to be, you know, industry terms, but I think they are a fairly good description of what these people are. There's a general practice consultant, uh, much like a general practice physician or a general practice attorney. They do whatever comes in the door that they're comfortable with. Generally, these are guys and ladies that will go out and do any type of residential work, uh, any type of what we refer to as Main Street commercial. That's, that's kind of like the mom and pop retail operations, small restaurants, non-chain restaurants, things like that. They will do some low-end workers' comp assessments and things like that because it's not very complicated to do workers' comp for, let's say, a small restaurant or, or a small business. And then they'll even do some low-end safety training if necessary for you know, loss control servicing because uh, it's basically some easy you know, ergonomic stuff or safe lifting, things like that. Uh, showing a video and uh, proctoring a little quiz afterwards or doing toolbox talks, you know, those sort of things that may need to be done from time to time. So 
general practice people usually do not specialize in either commercial or residential. They do both. They do whatever comes in the door. When I did inspections for years and I knew how to do a lot of the high-end stuff, I had no problems doing whatever. If it was a photo only where I go buy a house, take a couple of pictures out front, one picture in the back and fill out a five-question form and make 10 bucks, I'm good because even if I'm going to a uh, visit where I'm doing a full-on workers' compensation assessment that pays 300 it doesn't matter. The $10 just paid for my gas. It kept me going. It added to that income for the day that I want, that average daily revenue that I want. But we do have specialists. If you want to look at a specialist in the residential uh, marketplace, you could call them high-value dwelling experts, people that go out and look at mansions, look at houses. Uh, and and high-value dwelling, by the way, is sometimes a little confusing because depending on the program, this could be a house that's valued at 750000 or higher replacement cost. It doesn't necessarily mean, you know, $300 million superstar houses, although those things from time to time come up as well. We had a program, for instance, where we assessed a lot of properties in Beverly Hills, Hollywood Hills, Hollywood, and Los Angeles in general. And you got to see some some very pretty houses, uh, some very extremely expensive houses, although to replace them, it wasn't because they were buying the location, right? They weren't necessarily buying the property, the house itself. Uh, they were buying the land and the location. So that's, that's another thing. Um, some people prefer to do commercial only because they feel that commercial does pay a little bit more per case. And then you do come across people that think for some reason that I'm a commercial specialist and I shall not do any residential work, whatever. Look, everybody pays me to do whatever. So if you want to have me go take a look at a house, I'll take pictures of a house. If you want me to go to a multimillionaire's palace, I'll go do that too. It pays. You know, I, I'd much rather get paid than sit around waiting for the big cases to come in, right? At least that's my thought. But nonetheless... You'll have some specialists, and even within there, you might have people that are very good with property, and then other people that are good with general liability, or they may be good with workers' comp. And those, when you get into workers' comp, that really gets into the much higher experts because in many states, there's some regulations that are required on who does workers' comp service work or who does the initial assessments, and you may need to have an ARM, or you may need to have a CSP, Certified Safety Professional, or you may even have to be uh, some other high qualifica- higher qualification where you're qualified uh, for um, you know, some type of health and safety expert or health and safety specialist that you have a degree in or a certification in. Fortunately, most of it is okay in most of the states as long as you have experience and you know what you're doing, but there are some that will require some type of credential or designation to accept the report. And the carriers know that, the people you work for generally know that, so you wouldn't get assigned those unless you were qualified for it. Uh, There's aviation, which is a whole specialty of, of insurance that we deal with as well. Then you get into industrial stuff, manufacturing, civil engineering. Uh, you get to uh, public entities. Uh, I've done inspections on entire towns, uh, you know, where the, the town is under one insurance policy for police department, fire department, ambulance service, uh, street cleaning, whatever. It was all covered under some blanket policy. So you look at everything. And you're also looking at the properties that the city owns, you know, to house all these things because they need some type of replacement cost if a big disaster came through and wiped them all out. And then you have some other things, like for instance, I did was theme parks and entertainment venues. You have some some people who are specialists in risk control just for uh, movie sets and movie operations because that's a whole other world of risk control because uh, you're dealing with some high-end properties. You're dealing with uh, very well-paid actors and actresses that are covered by some very high premium insurance and stuff. And obviously, they're going to want people on movie sets or checking out movie sets to make sure they're safe or whatever. Uh, usually to do any of this stuff, you have to have some kind of background in it or you have to have been in the business so you can understand it. If you've never been on a movie set before, 
it is unlikely that you will be asked to go ahead and do a risk assessment on a movie shoot. But if you've worked in the movie industry or if you worked as an underwriter or something like that for one of the, the companies that underwrite these things, then yes, you would be qualified for something like that. So obviously, the more experience you, you have, the more access you may have to higher paying assignments. However, there is a real truth in all this, and it's one that I learned very early on, which is picky people don't get picked. Try not to say that a bunch of times because you'll mess it up, but picky people don't get picked. Do as much as you can of everything, and especially if you're not in a metro area, if you're, if, if you're away from a place where things are well concentrated, you need to get take almost anything that comes in the door. Just remember, companies like generalists or they like people who are not real you know, particular about the kind of assignments they get because it's a lot easier to assign things to them and it's a lot easier to manage them because, for instance, if I have a workers' comp assignment and I have three inspectors and of the three, only one takes a workers' comp assignment, I'll give it to them. However, if I have another assignment that comes through that would be good for all three, but two of them are busy and the only guy that I have to give to is the person that has the workers' comp case, well, if they don't like taking, for instance, a convenience store property report or whatever, they will turn me down. So now I'm stuck with a case that I have to get somebody to run and my other people are too busy. So I either bring somebody in from out of town or outside the area or in another territory to help cover it. Or I may even down the road look to bring on more inspectors that could help cover that area to take care of the work that that you, the workers' comp specialist, decided you're not going to do. And what ends up happening is I'll get somebody in that, yes, can do workers' comp as well, but they can also do the other things. So when it comes down to it, who am I more likely to give all the cases to as opposed to cherry picking the cases? And that would be the generalist that can do it all as opposed to the person that just wants a certain kind of case and refuses to do anything else. So again, you can be as picky as you want, but that will limit your income opportunities. Now, if you're a very big high-end specialist, like let's say uh, aviation liability or something like that, or airport liability, and you know, you have a following within the industry where people will pay to have you fly around and do reports and that's what you do and that's what you make your money on, by all means, that's fine. But that's not the, the, the general person that I'm talking to that's wanting to come into this business. It's someone who would probably more fall into a generalist or into a residential style uh, inspector at first. There's not a lot of classes you can go to. So that's why I always say that you need to have some kind of background. And it doesn't necessarily have to be directly in inspection. It can be in fire inspections if you're a firefighter or in the fire department. It could be police work because you're used to looking at things, examining things, writing reports, being observant, asking questions. All those things are very useful. Uh, some of my best inspectors used to be newspaper reporters because they know how to look at things, they know how to research, they know how to ask questions, and they know how to ask questions in such a way that the people they're asking don't get suspicious or they don't get nervous where they don't want to be very forthcoming with information. And that's part of the job when you're interviewing people. Uh, it's not to say that, that people are doing bad things and they, they don't want to tell you. This is not that kind of deal. But uh, remember, you're an inspector for the insurance company. That's about the same as being an IRS agent. So people are not going to necessarily tell you everything that you want to know. They're going to be very guarded because they're afraid if they say anything wrong, it's going to cost them more in insurance or it may lose them their insurance. So it's good to be able to have the personality to make someone open themselves to you as best they can. So besides that, let's take a look at fees. It's hard to be specific because of the different variables that are involved uh, but I can give you a range and I can break it down into kind of like what we just did as far as the categories. Homeowners work, payment range to the inspector, 
ranges, and this is very much a range, okay? It could be a little bit less for the low end, a little bit higher for the high end, but I'm trying to hit the middle here. $10 to $200. $10 would be one that you drive out to without an appointment, take a few pictures, fill out a short form, all right? It's called, uh, it varies, you know, some people use the term drive-by, but that's kind of not true. You do get out of the car. You are going to go take some pictures closer to the house. So let's just say it's a dwelling observation or it's a photo only. You go out there at $10. Quick five-minute deal. Uh, so it's not, you can do a bunch of them pretty easy. $200 is more of the high value dwelling issue. That's where you're going to go out to the house. You're going to take pictures in every room. You're going to write down a lot of stuff that you see. You're going to look at the type of appliances they have, the type of countertops. You may even measure countertops. You may measure certain things. You're going to measure the house, do a diagram, do a valuation, which is where you put in all the things that you saw and it comes up with a replacement cost price. And, uh, the houses are going to be big. You generally do not go out to a high-value house that's 1,000 square feet. It's going to be three, four, 5,000 or more. I mean, we've done as, one as big as 60,000 square feet, uh, multi-story all over the place. And it, depending on how big it is, you could be out there for hours. Uh, it also depends on the level of cooperation you get from the person that's there and, and how much time they're going to spend with you. Some could care less. They say, just go off and do what you got to do and let me know when you leave. And others will want to walk you through and tell you about all the different fancy man, you know, things that they have in the house. And that's a Salvador Dali painting. That's a Rodin statue. That's a whatever. That's how much I paid for that when I bought it in Venice last year, blah, blah, blah. And of course, that takes more time because half of the information you get sometimes you don't even need for the inspection, but it's still certainly good background information. It just takes a little, the inspection a little bit longer. Then you get into your basic commercial, your generalist stuff like I talked about. That could be what is commonly referred to as a business owner's package. That's, you know, let's say I open up a, uh, a small, um, small shirt shop, okay, t-shirt shop. I'll get a business owner's package that covers, you know, my property, my casualty, fire, and liability. Everything's all packaged together. And it's for one price. And generally, those are small premium, small risk kind of places. There's not much to those inspections. Uh, same thing for restaurants, bars, small non-chain stuff like whatever. So for a drop-in on a low-risk place, which is a low-premium place too, by the way, you know, they're not getting much money off of these policies, they're not going to want to spend a lot for these inspections. So you may make $25, $35. It's as simple as just filling out a quick report and taking some pictures. You will need an appointment generally. Up to probably 150 and that may be pushing a little bit on the high end, for a much more comprehensive inspection that may involve uh, a diagram, a commercial replacement costs, maybe if property's involved, uh, those sort of things. So 35 to 150. And just imagine that most of them may fall in the middle around the $60 range. Okay. Not so true with homeowners. Most of them are going to fall more to the lower end range because you don't have as many high value dwellings out there as you do with your regular, your regular homes. And by regular homes, I mean, you know, 750,000 or less or 500,000 or less. It's on the programs. A half a million dollar house is still a pretty nice house, but it's not covered under the high value. And then the biggest category is what I would say is advanced commercial. That's where you start getting into the hourly fees. And some companies uh, preferred, we do have hourly fees, but we generally prefer flat rates uh, because it's much easier for the inspectors to compute and much easier for us to compute because generally with hourlies, they're going to limit you to a maximum of hours anyway. So it, they may pay you certain amount hourly, but they're going to say the most you can charge us for this is four hours though. Well, why go to all the trouble? Just go ahead and let's flat rate it because there's very few companies out there that are not going to charge the maximum hourly charge because generally when the people figure out how many hours it takes, that's how many hours it takes. And they're going to get very suspicious of you if they, if you come to them with a report that's supposed to take four hours and you only charge them for an hour, they're going to get, they're going to question that. So 
we kind of say, let's just call it a flat deal so that way we know what it is. However, for the, the, do, the ones that do continue to use the, the hourly fees, and that's fine too. Uh, sometimes we have some clients that, that the hourly fee is not necessarily limited. It's within reason. You can't go in there and charge 100 hours for something that shouldn't have taken long, but they're not going to necessarily limit it. They're going to trust you to be honest with them and do it right. Uh, for the flat ones, you might make 150 or above, let's say. For the hourly, depending on your experience and what the type of inspection it is and how much the, the companies are getting in, it might be anywhere between 35 to 55 an hour that you would bill. And part of that is for your travel time to get there. Part of that is for time on, on location. And the other part of that is going to be for writing the report up. So you have to really consider those things. They're not going to pay you for 10 hours writing the report up unless it's a real bear of a report. And I've, I've seen those that certainly will take an entire day or more to write up. Uh, but then there are those that really don't justify that. And generally, as a, as a consultant, you may turn in you know, 10 hours on something, they may push back and say, no, you know, commonly, we don't think this is a 10 hour deal. This is only going to be a six hour deal. And then there's some negotiation involved. Other times they may just accept it. It all depends on how picky the client can be. And for those clients out there that are listening, you know that you're watching your cost too. And you're not going to want to just go ahead and pay out a couple extra hours that you don't think is justified. So, you know, that that's really how, how it all breaks down. So the way that your time is spent doing these things is obviously accepting and reviewing the orders that come in. You're going to then make appointments if needed. So that's going to require you to make some phone calls to, to make an appointment. And you very rarely get an appointment on the first phone call. I'll tell you that. You're lucky if you have the right phone number sometimes. So it may require some research and back and forth with the agency or the broker or whatever to get the right information. Because sometimes if these are renewals, the numbers may have changed and the agents didn't update it. They just hit the renewal button and off it goes. Uh, you get the appointment, then you have to obviously drive out to the location to perform the survey. That's going to take you a certain amount of time. And that, depending on the survey, could take you anywhere from 15 minutes to several hours, depending on what you're looking at. Then you have to, of course, return and then write up the survey. The survey, you figure for maybe every every half hour that you're on a location, figure maybe, uh, it's just so hard, maybe, uh, maybe 15 minutes of writing in a report for every half hour. So if we were to say that, then it's 30 minutes for every hour. It, it really depends. It depends on the company that you're working for, system, their forms, how complicated they are, how complicated the system is, how easy it is to put things in. However, I'll tell you this, key points, volume, concentration, and form. So if I'm going to give you a lot of volume, it's going to be really concentrated where you can do a lot in one day and you don't have to drive around so you're not burning gas to get it, okay? And the form is very easy or my system is very easy for you to put it in. There's not a lot of redundant, repetitive questions, a lot of things that you have to type in a bunch of explanations because you click yes or no or something. Those are really good. But there are those out there that will either have a bad system, it's difficult to put things in, the form that was designed by the client, for instance, maybe not the person you're working for, but the person they're working for, and ultimately you're, uh, the form is kind of old-fashioned, so there's a lot of narratives, which means you have to do a lot of typing and a lot of explanation on questions you've already answered in the form anyway. We're seeing a lot of that going away now because of more emphasis on data, but there's still pretty much a tradition of, of writing narratives and explaining things uh, to make it to where the underwriter, if they have any questions, can read the narrative and can see the explanation as to why you did something. Uh, that takes longer, obviously. And people who've been doing it for a long time will prepare some things in advance that they use in all the same things, and they'll drop in that language, but a lot of it still is pretty much original work that you have to do. Don't expect... When you're computing all these things, if you say, well, I, I want to bill $250 an hour, that's how much I'm worth, 
you better have a law degree or a medical degree or experience in an extremely specialized field with very few others to be able to justify that. And I can't tell you how many times that I have had consultants that we're talking to about fees and stuff come to me and say, well, if I don't make at least 250 an hour, then I'm not leaving the house. I don't think they leave the house very much to do insurance inspections work if that's the case. Wish Good luck to them. I wish I could find jobs like that. But unfortunately, you really have to be a specialist. You've got to get away from thinking like a wage earner. Don't think about a 40-hour clock because, as you will see, that just that, that kind of model doesn't exist when you're working on your own. And after this quick little break, we're going to talk about calculating whether or not this is really something you want to do. If you can make enough money to make it work as opposed to just working a regular 40-hour salary job or hourly job. Right back after the These are frightening times for your insureds. They are understandably apprehensive about meeting new people in their homes or businesses but you have to get the information necessary to be able to underwrite their insurance policies. Preferred Reports, one of the largest nationwide providers of insurance loss control surveys, has the answer. Get your inspections done ASAP, as safely as possible, using our revolutionary self-assessment port smartphone application. With it, your insurers can answer questions and provide photos and other documentation for your underwriting file. Using state-of-the-art validation technology, you can be sure the information you get is being received from your insurers. As a standalone or combined with a physical inspection, Preferred's ASAP app is your way to get critical information now. Contact Preferred Reports today at preferredreports.com. That's preferredreports.com. And ask about their new ASAP as safe as possible digital inspection product. Okay, let's look and see how this is going to have to work for you. All right, so here's some business basics. Probably you know this stuff already, but I'm going to go ahead and run it past you. Revenue, that's how much money you get in, minus your expenses. That's how much you had to pay to get that revenue in. Take that the difference, and that's your profit. Hopefully, it's a positive thing. It's a positive number because then you've made more money than you've spent, right? You can then take your profit and divide it by that revenue and come up with a profit margin. That's a percentage how much money did you make percentage-wise? Now, a negative profit or a negative profit margin isn't going to be sustainable for any long period of time or even a short period of time, depending on how much money you have. You are going to have weeks where you're not going to make any money, but at the same time with this business, generally you're not going to spend any money either because you're not going to be out driving. Because basically your tools are your car, a smartphone, high-speed internet access, and a decent computer that, please dear Lord, that you know how to use. Uh, You know, we're not in the computer teaching business. So hopefully you've got a computer that you know how to use and, and, and certainly how to surf the net to get to websites that allow you to put in your information. And by car, I do mean a car, economical car, one that doesn't burn a ton of gas, is preferably used and definitely not on a lease. Because if you're in this business, I think I averaged 100,000 miles a year. I didn't, I, I had a, I, we would buy a new car, but we never used it for inspections. It was always used for family driving or trips or something. But as far as inspections work went, it was a decent professional car, but it was not one that was intended for anything else because the miles would just kill it. Uh, and you certainly, I've had people that tried to start doing this business and they had a lease on their car. Don't do it. You're going to run out of miles so quick. It's going to get so expensive. You'll still have time left on your lease and you'll never, it's just never going to work. Now, if you have a special commercial lease, Enterprise does things and some of the other big companies might do that, then that's a totally different story. It's a different setup. But for just your regular automotive lease that you got 
uh, you know, when you're working at a regular job and just driving from your house to your place of business, which may have been a few hours, a few, I'm sorry, I'm in Atlanta, so it's a few hours, right? But it could have been a few minutes away. That's not the same thing as having to drive, you know, a total of 300 miles a day to get your inspections done. Uh, if you're very lucky, they're all concentrated. You're not driving around that much, and it's not that much, but you still don't want to be driving around a Ford F-350 going to do inspections because there's higher expense and upkeep on vehicles like that, and certainly the fuel cost is much higher, three times higher or more than if you were driving around a Toyota Tercel, right? may not be as impressive or comfortable as a Ford F-350, but you can always drive the Ford F-350 on the weekends and buy a new one every year with all the money you saved from the Toyota during the week. As far as not making money every week, there are going to be weeks that come up bad weather. There might be a pandemic, for instance, or there could be other issues that you just aren't able to get work done. Not just bad weather, but what about vacation time? Labor Day, Memorial Day weekends, you're not going to get appointments close to that. You also have a variety of holidays. And when you're in this business, you learn every one of them because that's where your pinch points are. That's where your problems are. And it always seems that all your work comes due New Year's week, Christmas week, Thanksgiving week, or, you know, or the 4th of July weekend. They always fall around there. You always have to move appointments around and stuff like that. So those are the kind of challenges that you face, and you're not going to necessarily make money. You're going to be off and able to enjoy the holidays. You're just not going to be making cash on Christmas Day, more than likely, unless you have other businesses that bring in revenue without you having to work. And there's certainly those opportunities, too, when you're, you're your own business. So let's look at what the costs are to do inspections. And I'm going to break it down into, using accounting terms, fixed costs. Those are costs that are pretty much the same no matter what happens every day. And variable costs. Those are things that may or may not happen depending on what's going on. Uh, fortunately, there's not that many things that go into this unless you get a little carried away and want to put everything into these cost categories because they're really not. You're going to already own a car, probably. You're going to already have a cell phone. You're going to already have internet access and a computer. So you already own these things. You've either already paid for them or you're paying for them on your credit card or whatever. So these costs exist anyway. You're just now going to be able to use them for your business and use them to make money instead of spend money. So with your fixed cost for an automobile, if you have one that's dedicated to inspections, and please, by all means, get a tax, tax accountant or an attorney to counsel you on this because there's all sorts of tax breaks and, and tax rules when it comes to uh, you know business expenses and how to expense out the space that you use for offices and all that kind of stuff. And you're going to need to know all of that because that's how you preserve your, your income is using the tax code to your benefit. But it takes a real specialist to know how to do that because it can get a little little squirrely, especially if you're getting into state taxes or, or even in depending on where you live, city taxes or whatever. So it's best to have professional advice. But for this purpose, we're going to say car note with insurance, your cellular phone bill and your Internet access bill. You pay those every month. Those are your fixed costs. And you can take that divided by 30. And that is your average cost per day for your fixed costs. Your variable costs are going to be fuel and upkeep for your automobile. They're going to be data charges if you go over your data limits or whatever. Most people don't really have that now. You're not going to really run into that with inspections unless you're using your cell phone to transmit a bunch of high uh, magnification photographs to somebody, but you're not going to do it generally. Uh, if you're going to go about the area beyond where you normally stay, then you're going to have hotel fees. You may run into the occasional broken computer, usually when it's most important to have one. You won't, so you may have to pick up one. I, I always had a backup. wasn't as fancy as the regular one, but I always had a backup that I could go to because they do, you know, in all the years I've done it, very few have ever broken down on me, but when they did, it was always at an inopportune time, but I had a backup to run to. Uh, 
Same thing if you have to replace a computer. I've never had to repair a computer. I've done it a few times myself when I could change a drive, but for the most part, you get a new one. They're too cheap now to bother, you know, trying to get it repaired unless it's data you want to get off that hard drive. And then, of course, some other variable costs, and they're variable because they may not be necessary, is if you want to go and pursue your ARM, or if you're able to sit for the CSP or something like that. Those are all costs that you're going to have to incur. And depending on what the designation is, it can cost thousands of dollars. Or if you're going to go get your CPCU, perhaps tens of thousands of dollars. Or if you want to go get a risk management degree, all that stuff. But does that really go into what your true business variable costs are? That's more for you than necessarily the company. And it will increase your ability to earn revenue. So all this goes into your, your cost calculation. Do not make the mistake and look at your income hourly because it's not going to be anywhere near what you think it is. Uh, you're going to say, oh, well, I'll be making 60 or $70 an hour. When you really sit down and add up all the hours that you work between phone calls, driving, and inspections, if you're working 12 hours a day, that's obviously going to dilute your hourly. I mean, I've had weeks where my hourly was below, if you want to look at it, if I, the 40-hour week was below minimum wage. But in fact, I was still making good money. So you just can't apply that model to the type of work we're doing here. So if you want to sit down and do some math, because that's important before you even think about going any further, you want to calculate your fixed costs, come up with a number, estimate your variable costs, and this is going to be a rough estimate on how much fuel it's going to take to go off and do inspections. You know, let's say 10 inspections a day within 100 miles of your house, that kind of thing. You can play it with a couple of different scenarios. And then also know what your family budget is, know how much money you need to bring home to contribute to the family budget, or if you're by yourself or if you're the only breadwinner, how much is it going to take to pay all the bills and then have money left over to actually exist beyond just paying bills, going to a movie every now and then, taking the kids to Disney once a year, whatever it is that's in your idea that you need to pay for, that's what you come up with. And then you'll be able to calculate how much money you need to earn. Break that down into weeks and then break that down into days if you want. And it's how many days you're going to be in the field. You technically, if you're doing residential work, can do work six days a week because there's no reason why you can't go take pictures of a house on a Saturday. And in some cases, you may have homeowners for high values or whatever that want you to do an inspection on a Saturday. So that's fine. But just remember, you have to have time to, to actually write these things up. So going out six days a week is difficult. I usually went out because I did commercial and residential. I went out three days a week and spent two days in the office making phone calls and writing up. And sometimes my write-up went into the weekends. Sometimes it didn't. And depending on what my schedule was, I would plan ahead of time and maybe take a four-day weekend if I was going out on a vacation or if we were traveling or whatever. So, I mean, there's, there's ultimate flexibility in what you want to do. But what I did was, I, and back when I was younger, it was pretty much arbitrary. I said I wanted to bring in $250 a day, no matter what. So I would calculate how much I could bring in with my inspections and how much I could bring in with, you know, my other means of revenue. I worked as a stringer uh, photojournalist for a newspaper. And as things would happen, if I was in the area, I'd either take pictures of myself and send it over. Or if uh, they had an assignment for me, they would text me and let me know there was a fire, a shooting or something they wanted me to go out and get pictures of. And I go out, take a few pictures, make a couple hundred bucks because they would get published on the newspaper. They get picked up by the AP. That was some pretty good money to augment. Didn't happen that often, but it was fun being a photographer for a newspaper. And then you also get to write some stories with it because oftentimes you're the only reporter on the scene. But anyway, that was what I did. And it also helped me on those days when 
I had residential work. There was no appointment, so I'd have a pile of inspections. And around about 2 o'clock, you're getting tired, and you say, well, I've almost made what I wanted, so I just need to do one more. Okay, well, if you do five more, and it's not going to take you that much longer, you're actually going to get more than what you expected. That's going to cover your gas, everything, and you're going to make more than the 250 a day you expected. You might bring home 350 that day. And that helps compensate for the rained out weekend or the rained out week you might have next week because it's very difficult to do residential inspections in the rain. Or if you're going to do a, a car dealership that's out in the open or whatever, rainy pictures are bad. I don't care if you wear you know, a raincoat and carry umbrellas. It just doesn't look that good. And you end up having to, to schedule a, a sunnier day or at least one that's not raining. So once you get all this stuff together and you have this amount, then you can try to use some of the numbers I gave you to compute what your potential income would be. And that's all going to depend on where you live. If you're in a city, you can assume a high, medium, and low that you could get with a number of companies that are going to give you good volume and good concentration, and they're going to pay you, you know, middle rate money on average. Compute that, multiply it by the number of days you're going to be in the field. And if that covers what you need to cover, then you're good. If it's better than what you need to cover, you're really good. But just understand, there's absolutely no guarantees that you will earn that amount that you come up with, that even if you get into this business and for an entire year, you consistently made $2,000 a week without a problem, that the first week in the next year, you're going to earn anything. Because you can go rapidly from thousands a week income to zero in a matter of seconds. I saw it happen in the recession it hasn't happened yet now with the pandemic, but there's always that possibility of the economy tanking. And when it does, so does this business. But I will show you how to get around that in our next show. So there are ways for people that stick to it to make it through recession. And we'll talk about that. If you can handle the stress of no guarantee, all right, then keep listening because the next show, we're going to really get into how to, to get into these companies, get them to send you out assignments and start earning money as a consultant. But if you can't, if you're the sole breadwinner of your family and your family relies on you for every nickel, for everything, there's no other revenue opportunities, there's nothing else, that if you go into this, you've got your family savings and nothing else, then that would be extreme high stress and you need to really look at this carefully. Maybe this would be something you would want to do maybe on a Saturday and just do residential exterior inspections just to dip your toe in the water. And then maybe you could take some vacation time to go do some other stuff during the week just to see what you think you can have. But you know what? Even if you have great days, there's no guarantee that when you do it, it's still going to be there. The good thing about doing independent contracting as a consultant is there's absolute freedom. You set your own working schedule. You decide what, what to inspect, when to inspect based on the orders that you have. You don't have to take the orders. You can say, no, I'm not going there. You have to give it to somebody else. Or you take everything that comes in and you schedule it out. The earnings potential, I can't say is unlimited because face it, there's only so many hours in the day that you can actually produce reports. So there are going to be some limitations. It's not like you're selling multi-million dollar real estate where one real estate deal, you're going to you know make two real estate deals in a year and you pay, made your entire year salary, right? That, that kind of earnings potential isn't there but you can make a decent wage. I made several years in a row before the, the recession over 100000 a year. And I was working my way back up to that after the recession. I never made really less than forty a year. But think about that. High of 100 low of 40 That's a $60,000 spread that happened in a few years. You have to be able to sustain that. So that's a big consideration. There is a risk you take to get the reward of freedom and earnings potential. If you're the kind of person that likes to meet people, 
Great job, because in the commercial business, you get to learn so much about so many different types of businesses. You get to meet so many different people. It, it really opens your eyes to a lot of things, and it's fun. Now, the bad is you've got to be a highly self-motivated individual with no one else, maybe your wife, of course, or your husband, kicking you in the butt to get you out of bed in the morning to go off and do these things. You've got to be self-motivated. You've got to pick up that phone and make the call to get the appointments. You've got to pursue these things. You've got to make sure that you can get out to the location that you're saying you're going to, and then you have to go out and do it. You just have to get up and do it. There's no earnings guarantee, and there are so many variables, more than you could possibly think of, that could impact your earnings. I can't tell you how many times I had an entire month scheduled out and half of it would get rained out. So I thought that I would be ending the month with $15,000 in the bank and I ended up with $4,000 in the bank. That's a big deal. That's a big hit to your forecast. And that certainly can impact your living if you're not careful. Remember, there's things like bad weather, the economy, pandemics, all of that stuff is very hard to predict. And when you get caught in it, it's never a good thing. You've got to have some backups. So If you have experience that qualifies you for one of these types of inspections that you want to do and you have the interest in learning more and you have access to the tools, you're able to deal with all the costs and more importantly, the uncertainty, and you can get yourself up on a cold winter morning to go inspect a couple of car dealerships and some grocery stores for the next 10 hours and then come back home and write up reports, then listen to the next Inspectacast. If not, it's been great talking with you. Wish you the best of luck in whatever you decide to do. But if this is still of interest to you, listen to the next Inspectacast next Tuesday, Getting and Keeping Inspections Customer. That's Getting and Keeping Inspections Customer. And we're going to talk about all the things that can go on and how you can bring in multiple streams of revenue. I don't want to sound like a get-rich-quick guy because that's not what I'm intending to do. But there's a lot of ways to make money in this business, and I'm here to help you. Thank you for listening to Inspectacast, sponsored by Preferred Reports. I look forward to you listening in on the next show and hopefully the ones after that. Have a great evening.